This podcast is brought to you by Steve Motor Group, Claire Gawe. For your personalised vehicle shopping experience, find out more at stevemotorgroup.ie. So delighted now to be joined by Morris Brosnan. Uh, we're just going to touch on a couple of the club management appointments um, that have been going around, Kerrfield and Bridges in the Connacht final. But before we do that, we're obviously not going to name the club here now because we don't want to get ourselves in trouble or anything. But I think a lot of people are well aware of this now that there's been a player charter going around and there's been a number of commitments for players to sign uh to be part of this uh, senior hurling club team squad for the year. Firstly, Mars, it's amazing the reaction it's got on Twitter. I think it was Sunday night. It was just covered all over my feed. What have you made of the backlash of it? Uh, like, interesting. I don't, I don't know, Paul. This, I, I, I'm sure you were the same. I would have got this, kind of, you get it early on WhatsApp and you fairly quickly realise that this is going to go Gonna go, you know, everywhere. Um, and the original version has lads' names in it and all this kind of stuff, which you're you're fairly skeptical about. I have to be honest, like I mean, my, you know, I I, I haven't spoken about this anywhere else, and I didn't realize we we're going to talk about it here. But like, if I'm if I'm brutally honest with this, like I think that some of the reaction to this is is interesting. Like, there's a tenant in stuff like this where you kind of sometimes, and I'm speaking generally here, but sometimes when something comes across your radar, uh, whether it be in journalism or on social media or everything. You kind of have to ask a couple of questions, and there's a lot of stuff that we don't know here. So, like, we don't know the validity of this. We, I, I, a lot of people are were speculating about the club because of the names that were attached to it. We don't know where it came from. We don't know was this player led? Like, is it actually a dictate onto management? A lot of people seem to be assuming that it's a dictate onto management. Other people, if you actually do, you know, your due diligence as a journalist, you kind of have to, and you ask a small people, a few people about it. They might tell you otherwise. They might tell you this was driven by. By a leadership group or something like that. So my point here is like a lot. I think a lot of people are given really forceful opinions and talking about how much of a disgrace it is. When I would question certain validity, I also think a lot of stuff. And maybe the worst thing about this is that it was put in writing. Like I think there's clubs who would have similar thoughts about a lot of maybe not every rule in this. In fairness, like some of them are real OTT, but they would have similar thoughts about how much of a loss it is if a fella is you know going away during during the summer and trying to get them back or or that kind of thing. So, but the fact that you're kind of having this hard and fast attitude about it, um, and then more like more broadly, the idea of charters themselves, I do think are a, a total con. Like I, the, the more and more I think about it, it's the I don't think any team is losing the game because they don't have a charter. I think if you're getting obsessed about that kind of the one percenters, there's there's bigger picture stuff. And it's one thing I would notice maybe sometimes is that sometimes you know you can find players or management or whoever get obsessed about the the minutiae, get really obsessed about the small details, sometimes to their detriment, not actually appreciating the bigger picture. So sometimes, you know, lads will they'll be weighing out their water, they'll, you know, be absolutely paranoid about their macros, getting exactly the right number of protein, tracking every single food they eat, and then they turn up for training and they only get kind of a six out of a ten. Or they might skip a, a set at the back end of a gym session or they might do finish out every single run. And, you know, there's a bigger picture there that you can focus on that stuff. There's kind of technical, tactical stuff that you can drill down on. And if you're getting all that right, maybe then you can go and get obsessed about this kind of minute stuff. But yeah, like broadly, I, despite myself, I know, I, I do agree that you you can be absolutely critical of this kind of dictate and, you know, dictating down to players and telling them exactly what to do. But I do feel sorry for, for the club because, and maybe it'll come out in time that they can clarify what it, where exactly 
this all came from and what was behind it. Um, we haven't got it yet, so I don't think that's likely. But uh, I just think it's like it's a very it's a more complicated situation than maybe has been depicted in in, in certain places. You would have a degree of sympathy for this club because everyone's uh, seemed to have an opinion on this straight away that it is ridiculous. And listen, some of it's ridiculous that you can't play golf after June, <laughs> etc. <laughs> but at the same time, is this just not what happens in a lot of clubs around the country? Obviously not to this degree, but like a lot of these charities and stuff, it's, it's something that just seems to happen at the start of the year. Like you could see a lot of people referencing um on some podcasts that like this wasn't a massive surprise that they've seen some of these being implemented before well it would have been they would have been all arranged like maybe a decade ago you would have seen a couple of famous examples of ones that got leaked and kind of went there i remember it was a bridget's one right that um really kind of caught people's attention because some of it was it wasn't necessarily even just how strict it was it was just how kind of ludicrous some of the the, the rules are so it would have been a thing maybe 10 years ago i do think as it from a coaching education perspective one one criticism i would have from and again i'm talking generally here but i think some coaches don't know the famous ben rogers line like you're you're training humans not dogs i do think there is probably an element of some you see it in certain elements of coaching where a lot of coaching is you know kind of master pupil type stuff and really kind of dictating down to people and that's i don't think that stuff has any truck in 2023 i don't think it's the recipes for success I think a lot of clubs are a lot more progressive about that but at the same time the point you're making like from a cultural perspective there is absolutely there's a, you know certain clubs will have huge kind of cultural values that have player-led meetings you've heard Carfin talk about that a lot now over the last couple of years about how many just player-centered meetings that they would have had and they would drive those standards and would have kind of maybe similar rules internally that they would they're not they're not enforcing them they're just all this kind of a collective buy-in into that so there is there is an element of that too, but I think that stuff probably needs to be more holistic than being handed down to teams. But I go back to my point, Paul. I I'll hold my hands up. I don't know. Like, and I think a lot of people who are talking about this don't know whether that was the case here. Like, is this are you 100 percent that this is being handed down to players as in this series you have to buy in? Or would it have come from somewhere else? And until you know that, I think just there's no harm in whole, like we don't have to jump to massive conclusions every time something comes across our radar on Twitter, you know, we can, we can look <laughs> at it and we can, you can kind of look at it and, and I don't know, maybe sit, sit back and, and if like, I detail, further details might come out about this in the next mm-hmm. couple of weeks on, on, on either end and then maybe you, you, you can feel free to think and you can talk generally about the idea of, of charity but just this idea that you're going into absolute detail about this club, like, like a lot of people, I've heard conversations about this nationally and they're still speculating whether or not it's true or not. And to me, if you're speculating about a, anything, whether or not it's it's true or not, that's the time to press pause and do a bit of due diligence and actually look into it. At least and at least confirm its validity. Like that, that's a basic tenet of journalism. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my my take on it anyway. It's came really though from the club having numerous lads away last year in America, in Canada, or wherever they were traveling. Or people coming back, yeah, yeah, and I'm sure I'd say a lot of I would say a lot of charters come from a specific issue, and the club themselves say, like, well, do we need to address that? So let's drill down on that. Let you know, there's one incident happens in a year, and then you try and react to it. But I I really think like a lot of this stuff is, and there are ways, there are subtler ways for management to try and instill a culture. There's things you could do 
you know, within a club that would drive this stuff. It doesn't necessarily need to be handing them down. It can just be, it can be subliminal messaging. It, to this, I would go right down to the minutia of every single club now, Paul, are going to do their end of the season gig. They'll have, uh, you know, every up and down the county, they're going to do, they'll get together, they'll have a few drinks, they might hand out a couple of awards for the year. A big award, I think, within that, every single club should be giving out a, a most dedicated award or something some something like about that. You know, in I, I just finished a book there recently uh, about the Bulldogs when they won the AFL Grand Final. It was like a kind of a story, it's a fair tale year where they won it. But after every single year, they had a, a domestique, which is a, it's an idea from the Ryder Cup. It's the guy who does all the hard work and then clears the way for the sprinter to come up the end and win the award. So they give out that award after every game. It's the guy who does the kind of the unseen, the grunt work. And I, I, a lot of clubs could learn from that idea. Like you know, if you if you give out something like that, like a rec- recognition for the maybe the underappreciated, the the real kind of dedicated guy, and glorified it, made it a big deal. Subliminally, that just sets into everybody else's mind. They all looked at it and think that's maybe a template for us. And again, this is kind of a way of driving it without. My point there is that you don't have to. It's not about cracking the whip. Like I don't, and I don't think that works. Honestly, I think yeah. it, it turns people off. It, it drives people away. Um, and I would say, uh, even in coaching, I, some drills you'd watch now, and it is really that kind of, you know, it's not a conversation, it's not engaged with players. Some of the best coaching I've seen is the opposite. It's guys you know, getting in under a skin. Nearly, it's more of like a friend relationship than it is like a, you know, this master police, like the warden kind of stuff. Like that That do, just doesn't have any truck anymore, I don't think. I don't think people respond to that. So, But again, I'd say you can generally hear, like the, and, and that specific case or that the supposed club there was obviously instance this year where players were coming back late and that had a, a, a knock on effect but I you know already you're very in speculation here I don't know if that is what drove this and I and I don't think a lot of people do either yeah I I thought we were really gone with the day of uh, drinking bands and stuff at club but <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we are there just on um the club football I suppose the Connick Championship and everything, it's taken centre stage, but for a lot of people from the outside looking in, there's a bit of intrigue around this time of year, who's getting appointed to be different club uh, managers. We only said off there, off air there, boom, I think we were doing the first podcast this year in the club championship, it was uh, myself, yourself and Sean Denver, and we were talking about the stability of yeah. club managers, <laughs> but... Like there's numerous amount of clubs now uh trying to look for a new man. There is, yeah. And I think this is maybe that was my own naivety time. This was probably to be expected. I don't know, was that necessarily stability as it was a certain point in time where managers had just been in there for a year and like what are we <laughs> before next year's or in two years championship, will we talk about stability again? Because there's been a lot of recent appointments and they've only got a year done. Like I think that might have just been a function of their terms as much as it was anything to do with a kind of long-term processes or, or anything like that. But yeah, it's like, it's, it's silly season. There's clubs up and down the county either looking or making appointments. Um, so you've got clubs like Kerr Galway who went public and advertised for uh, a position. And uh, I don't think that position has been filled. I'd say they're fairly far down the process and you would hear name, names linked to it. All right. Um, and then across the county, then, you know, on out the West Barna, obviously are still looking for, for somebody uh, they've done, it was over Barnard last year, was ratified as Tune Stars manager this week. Um, Spittle have appointed somebody that tomorrow, as far as I know, haven't. Um, and then, you know, look at the other side of the county. Uh, I think Jared Jennings has stood down from Milltown. Um, I don't think Carol Sharpton have appointed anybody 
moving on from what they had last year. So it's this time of year is crazy, Paul. And it's not just it's not just from a goal perspective. It's, it's kind of across the county. And I think a lot of clubs, you've got one of two options. You can do the the go public and advertise it and get people to send in their process. So you could try and drive it internally and find somebody uh, who is willing to take it on or maybe even preferably if there's a three-year continuity, if you, especially if you had a very good manager, which a lot of the county's uh, clubs did last year, you would try and get somebody from that ticket to stay on and kind of continue that good work so you're not ripping it up. Um, I think that's certainly from a player's perspective, that's what they would want. So this time of year is, is silly season. You're going to, and it probably feed into, I do think there is an element now, all right, you're starting to feel the pinch a small bit as you lead into December. You don't want to be yeah. just dragging into the new year is not a good thing because even just from an S&C perspective or testing or any of that kind of stuff, you want to kind of get ahead of the curve there. I do think clubs, I think some clubs went back way too early uh, last year and they felt, in my opinion, they were they felt the punishment that you saw. I, I think some clubs flamed out. I don't, this idea of coming back for Christmas is ludicrous. I Coming back yeah. in January yes. is, uh, is yeah, it's like it's, uh, it's absolutely ludicrous, and if, I, I mean, I, I think I know I said it to you before, and I think some you're kind of your hands are tied because of the, when the league starts. I personally, I think February, like I, I train in the muck and rain the pitch, and you can kind of take the leave for what it is. And I know certain teams don't want to be chasing it, but uh, I, I just I think there's there's scope to to push it out a small bit. So, um, and if the league, I, I, not to go over all ground here, but if the league was pushed back even just two weeks, I think that would give maybe get rid of the semi finals. That would give clubs the excuse to push it out a small bit as well but um, I definitely think they're, you're kind of starting wanting to you'd want to be fairly far down the road at this stage of the year right Just on this I know you had a piece in the examiner about all the different Curfid men involved oh, yeah. in management this this year do you think we're even going to see more Curfid lads this year now that clubs are going to be trying to get after I have absolutely no doubt yeah I think uh, yeah, it's just the, the nature of it, the success that they've had uh to what the, the what the club is producing and just the, the basic idea that was at the heart of that piece which is that uh Carfin produce too many coaches to cater for, for themselves they just don't have the there's not enough spots to be filled inside that club and it's just a natural thing that a lot of these ambitious coaches are going to end up being attracted elsewhere and you saw it this year like you saw I think certain clubs got a huge lift out of out of Carfin men being involved uh across the county and I, yeah I think that'll only that only persists. I did um, I did a kick, a kicking coach to kick pass session out in Lock George two weeks ago, which was Golgi organised these sessions, and it's a total testament to them. Like I, certain counties, in terms of a coach education perspective, I really think Goller are ahead of the curve on this. Yeah. They do they, they, like this stuff is so accessible. They do get the people who give the courses are. Are, are excellent you know Keen O'Neill from uh, as part, as well as being part of the guy management ticket will often give these courses Kevin Johnson the Garfield manager actually gave a course the same day that I was doing one so they are and, and they're so accessible like they make them available on both sides of the county kind of throughout the year uh, if, if, any, if you can actually you can set up your own course report if anybody is interested and you can see when they're accessible and sign up for them but they are I think they're well worked you'll always get a, a one or two nuggets out of it that is very helpful but I did one out in Loch George and uh, Gary Sice was giving it and so Gary Sice was there with John Dively on, uh, and it was it was excellent but just to watch to watch how uh, these were the under I knew a couple of them I think they were the under 15s or the under 16s there's a couple of bitch lads there who would have been so last year's Galway development panel under 15s I'd say who were uh, 16 this year so it, it was a bunch of them who were doing the who were being coached and we were all watching and to watch the development in a young lad who 
maybe streaky confidence definitely wasn't going to try his weaker foot kick passes kind of spraying all over the pitch body kind of hunched over a bit off the start to the end where spraying ball off both feet total and utter confidence and how you know someone like Gary Sice was able to get in under his skin kind of gently encourage him along a couple of really pointing cues things like you know how you move your body let's say if you're talking about the angle of a kick pass how you can lead the kicker communicate with him without necessarily words so if you turn your chest out to the sideline and make a break there that's exactly where you want the ball all that kind of subtle stuff that he was able to kick him with the instep all the, the classic Harfin cues that you would hear over time how he was able to get that fella from there to the end for me anyway it was it was a remarkable insight into what drives that club a guy like Gary Sice now, for example, who I think would be, I'd say would be a very successful coach um, as it goes on, judged off of a fight shot there. But also it's a testament to why you would want someone like that in your club. Like if you can get that development in a session, can you imagine that over a season? So yeah. I, I, I can already see a few clubs after Gary Sice for next year. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's not saying he's like going to retire anything because we've seen Mike Ferrer this year at Intermediate. I think that's probably going to encourage some intermediate clubs now saying, well, they're not going to be playing in this championship. So to go after him. Great point, yeah, yeah, a great point. Especially how that was, how well that was balanced. Even I would have had, I, I hold my hands up. I would have questioned that, not in terms of his knowledge or anything like that, but just how was it going to work if, as happened this year, you get a, an intermediate game fixed at the same time day as a senior game? How do you balance both? And as it worked out, as it turned out, it wasn't an issue. That they, they actually did, did it very successfully. So yeah, that's a great point. I, I, you could fully anticipate that. But I, yeah, there's, there's also scope. I think there's senior clubs who will absolutely look for just coaches who. Have done great work, kind of account account. You know, the Karen Murphy's of the world who've been around, they've done some really good, they've developed a really good CV. I can fully see clubs kind of making approaches and trying to get more of them involved. Yeah, there's there's already names um that aren't being involved with clubs. Even you look Michael Donnelly, who was with the nineteens previously with Montpellier, could he be someone? Kevin O'Brien uh being involved with Scottstown. Not a not a lot of people were aware of it until um, he popped up on TV <laughs> yeah, until he popped up on TG Gar. Yeah, like it makes perfect sense. Scott, that's got something that they've a savage ticket, like a really, yeah. really impressive thing. Peter Donnelly is there as well, um, who would have been like a really highly regarded SNC coach, uh, kind of developed a fine CV, would actually end up working with us to rugby for a while as well. Um, I think there is an element when you definitely when you see, you know, when you see Kevin on the sideline, when you hear. Like the Jack McCarran transfer all last out this year, there is definitely an element where Scott Saunders went bald headed after this year and decided that uh, this is finally the year that they want to, to get over the line. Um, and it was, it's funny, like I know sometimes it, you can do this subconsciously and maybe you're trying to connect the dots when they're not there, but there are certain, when you're certain elements of their game that you're watching, the way they created that last score for Conor McCarthy, for example, you think that was kind of Carfini, like they're a bit how quickly they were to. Every single pass going forward, runners all off the shoulder, huge depth and width in their attack. Um, so you you can try to kick the last, but I mean, there's another like talking about a, somebody who I'd say a lot of coaches uh, clubs would love to get involved. I'm sure his his phone is absolutely ringing off the hook, and it just so happens that the Scots ones were they're kind of lucky enough to, to to get him. So um, that's a double cracker. Jeez, I can't wait for that. Uh, what's the final? Like I really think that Scots on Glen game could be. Before so hopefully I I get up to this weekend. Obviously, it, it, it's great too. But I do think that game. There, there, I this is one of the first years where there there's real intrigue for me around every single provincial final. Like I wouldn't even the Lens final on Saturday. Like I I wouldn't be as confident as some people are about that. I do think there's you could get four very very interesting games here. Just before we get into Kirby Bridget's, obviously Monavey Abbey were playing 
Castlebury St. Kevin's at the weekend, uh, the final game in the hay shed before it was brought down, two four to eight points. They'd be disappointed. They they definitely had chances to win this one, but just came up short in the end. Yeah, and there's two sides to this. There's the uh there's the chances that they had and there's the goals that they conceded. And uh like the first goal is, is actually a really, really well worked move. It's you're sweeping on that left hand sideline ball comes back into a foot for uh foot forward kind of dummies drops the shoulder, takes on his man, beats him. And then so once that happens and you have support runners, everybody just starts scrambling, you know. So he he gets through. He's got an option coming on down the sideline side on the wing. He's also got an option at the back post, which he ends up taking ball across the back post. And it's a goal. Four minutes in, there's absolute sucker punch. Like for if your first score you can see it as a goal. And to their credit, they respond very admirably. And I think when Dan Kenny kicks that free, starts second half on on his right, it's a one point game again. Like they've they've got it right back. And then just a complete... I don't know what it is about that that end. We've seen a couple of weird goals, yeah. similar goals at that end in, in tune. But um, yeah, like corner four just romp down, hits outside of his foot shot. It's one of those balls that hangs so long in the air that by the time it actually lands, there's three or four people in the square. Not in terms of... But they just naturally arrive there because the ball is, is hanging so long and it just... You know, goalkeeper loses sight of it or whatever and it... it bombs off his chest and goes into the corner and just a complete killer but uh, and then at the other end you know 2-4 you would it's not you could you still even if they you'd offer that to you know if the bones before the game or to Monday they still probably would have backed themselves to, to outshoot that but it just didn't necessarily come off they've had like fringe runs are funny Paul like you can have weird strokes uh, unfortunately you can bottle all that emotion of a Killian McDaid injury and, um, and kind of you know use it to your advantage but then suddenly Kind of a game like that, and you really feel his loss. So, uh, I, I eventually caught up with him to a certain extent. Like, I, I feel very sorry for him, like that. I mean, uh, with the greatest respect in the world to St. Kevin's, but like, I do if McDale is there, I think he's he's worth two points. Like, you know, that I mean, yeah. that's that uh, anybody will tell you that. So, uh, I would feel I feel a degree of sympathy for them, but their their primary job was was done this year. Like, this, I they wouldn't have considered this bonus 30 whatsoever, but. Uh, the minimum, or what they're after the go, the you know the main goal. Ninety percent of their focus this year was was coming back up, and they they did that. Um, so and then after that, this like you, you might necessarily end the season on the note you've you wanted, but as a season, like you know, it was. I'm stating the obvious here. It was obviously a successful year for them. Yeah, and a really young age profile of the team too. Yeah, and and, and a lot of guys who I think people would I think they like. Um, we've spoken on a good bit on this podcast. I think a day like that will actually stand to Glenn Kelly even more. You know, the, maybe if things aren't necessarily coming off and you're you're trying to force that experience, you know, any co- decent coach will often tell you you learn way more from a loss than you will from a win. But I think that's true for players too. Like I, I think the going through games like that will will only stand to you in the in the long run. So like the club as a club, their profile is in a very good place. It's some very talk about impressive management t- like tickets. You know the Everybody from uh, from Francis, obviously, but also, you know, uh, my father was there. John Donnell was a volume this year. Like, they've yeah. really kind of knowledgeable people in, in the background there. So they're, they're in a very good place. I wouldn't be one bit surprised if they try and talk about continuity, get everybody back for next year, kind of build on this year. Um, I, They're not a team anybody is going to be looking forward to draw from a senior perspective. I was kind of looking at it right, you know, with the seedings and the fact that we're probably going to groups of four. And I'd say we're going to, I'd say football would go what, what Hurland did and you'd end up the with the Premier League quarterfinals, you know, the top three going through, uh, there's a couple of, you, some really dog groups, like there's groups that yeah. you, could really, you could really end up in a, an absolute bear pit. 
which is a good thing from a neutral perspective. Like you know, the games, the, those group games, even though teams don't like the fact three come out, there still could be absolute crackers because you wouldn't be able to predict it based off the four they're in. But uh, they'd be a, yeah a right challenge for anybody whoever they they draw. Marsh, just one thing on uh, those groups. Uh, Anis Brannock was on the podcast earlier on the year. He was saying he was hoping with the senior format that they'd bring in a home venue, an away venue, and then a neutral venue. This is... Because like if you look at the groups, there wasn't massive attendances if you have a game in Pierre Stadium early on in the senior championships. But this home and away and neutral, it seems like a perfect idea really to me. Yeah, I... I, I could not agree with you more. I I I know I this I've been going on with this a long time and I actually I know I put up a tweet that when I was at the I was at Spittle for the Michaels planning game and somebody did say to me, all right, that like you know, it was said to me the next day when I was in Per Stadium, you're trying to deny club players the chance to play in Per Stadium, which is absolutely not what I was advocating for at all. But the point that I was trying to make was that uh, I I think club venues are so much better for group games. I just think I think atmosphere gets lost in group games. I don't think the allure is the same for group players. You can reward knockout stages, fair enough. County final, obviously, they're deserving of kind of a big stage and you'll get a crowd in there. But the atmosphere is lost. Uh, I don't think it does as much. I I'm I'm a national reporter, so I'm obviously I, I live in Galway, but I cover games up and down the country, and I'm just telling you for a fact, games in club venues are a lot better. Their atmosphere yeah. is so much better. I, you know, I. We're contrasted to some of the best club championships in the country. Kerry, for example, a lot of their group games will be played in uh, in the club championship will be played in club venues and they're brilliant. Uh, I think there's way more attached to it. There's even just banal stuff like the, I think, the, you know, the edge of rivalry. I think it's a better chance for clubs to get more people out if they've got kind of a home uh, crowd and you can engage people that way. So, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I loved it. I loved the idea of groups being in. And it's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing, Paul, because as a county, we're very well served by stadiums. You know, like June has been, uh, as much as the people will kind of maraud the, the hay shed, it has been a kind of iconic venue for a long time. We've like, as a club, we played in club venues this year and club venues are only getting better. Like we played, we played in Middletown this year uh, under lights. I think it was the first championship game that, that had been hosted there since they put in that, those floodlights and it was brilliant. Like it was a brilliant occasion. So I can only imagine it would be tenfold if you brought it to, home or away venues so yeah I, I pitches can take it now I think uh, especially if they if we persist with the split season a lot of the from a group's perspective a lot of these games are going to be played in you know August September so it's not as an issue where you're going to be playing games at the back end of the year so I would I would absolutely love to see that happen I don't see it happening but I would, I would love to see it yeah because there's even going to be more and more local derbies now just with the way the groups are formatted it just creates such a buzz around that game it does, and I, the format. I think, yeah, I do think it has a a real knock on impact on games when you're in your stadium and the crowd is lost. I, I I think players get a sense of that. I I, yeah. I honestly do, and I and the, the flip side is true too. If the place is absolutely hopping and you know people are trying to lift the roof, it definitely does have an impact that way as well. So, um, you saw what happened to United yesterday in in Galatasaray. I'm not saying we're going to get quite the same level although there's some clubs out in Connemara maybe but um, uh, no only messing I do, but I do think like from a venue perspective that it, it just makes perfect sense to, it's not an issue from a facilities perspective anymore it's not an issue from a pitches perspective anymore um, I, there's probably a couple of minimums you, the county board might be keen to get probably keen to get a, a gate around pitches probably keen to get a stand probably you have to have dugouts all that kind of stuff but the vast majority of clubs have that now and yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, 
fingers crossed. It's a great idea. I'd love to see it. There have been obviously this weekend in Connacht final action, uh, half one on Sunday against St. Bridget's in Hyde Park, game live on TG Carr as well. Isn't it amazing though in the middle of the club season when a team is just strong favourites that the game just gets completely lost? What do you mean? Well, like Kerfin and Bridget's this week, it's kind of got completely lost because Kerfin are strong favourites going into this and there's not much people giving Bridget's. I, I know, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, lastly, like, yeah, um. Yeah, I just, like there's probably a bit of allure around the Carfin story. I think people are nationally now would have a lot of interest in that and would be paying attention to the club. And it also helps that they would recognise a lot of the names from a Carfin perspective. But um, this, I did, there probably would have been a lot more buzz if Bridges had been more convincing against Molehill and they yeah. weren't. Uh, I, did, I did that. Um, they kind of stuttered to a certain extent into a final, which I know I'm sure if you talk to people in Roscommon, that's the best place, you know, floating in under radar like that. They'll they'll absolutely love that um, there's kind of a feel that Roscommon did that a couple of times this year they definitely did to Mayo in the, as an intercount team in the, the championship you've even seen some of their clubs do that in the past as well um, but yeah like it is it's kind of I don't know at one, at one level this is the nature of probably that you won't get that prolonged buzz at the same time too you've probably got even from a local GA perspective you've got the double header in Leinster which will attract yeah. a lot of eyeballs there's probably a degree of intrigue Paul in that there's some great stories elsewhere too. Like the cushioned all slot Neil Buster final is there's a kind of a great story around that. For the last couple of weeks, the intermediate and junior championships has been delivered in week on week. So there's probably an end of that as well and feed into it. And it's probably I'd be reasonably confident to say it's is it the most one sided provincial final? Um I'd imagine it is. I'd say Castlehaven Dingle is 50-50. against uh, Gostown a tough game to call it. Kim McCullough probably strong enough favourites riding at Nace, but I'd say it's probably a lot of people have it as the most one-sided game. So all that factors in, and it probably doesn't. It you know we're talking here midweek. It not might not necessarily have the same element of excitement. I do think it'll come. Like I think by the, the weekend, people will be intrigued and they'll tune in to, to see Corfin if nothing else. Is Brian Stack gone this weekend? I, his knee was so heavily strapped in that game that it's hard to. And the fact that he came on, it's very hard to know. Like um. Uh, I think he came on. I don't. I, I. I'm guessing here. You're reading the tea leaves. You're looking on from the outside. But I'd say the plan wasn't to get for him to play that game, and then just a real tight game, and you need that element of uh, security. And especially when, as Mohill are chasing the game, they start peppering their full back line. Maybe that's why they they got him in there. But just when you see how much strapping was on his knee, you wouldn't have any degree of confidence that you you could spin that. I'm sure that's been you know he dedicated himself to this for trying to get back for this game. And if there's even a a small percentage chance that he can play it. I'd say he will play, but this, you know you can force this to a certain extent, and then it can just come up the way. I I don't know. Maybe it's because of the last part of the game. I keep thinking of Jerk Africa. I'm just I felt so sorry for him to see. You know, you'd heard all week that talk was around for for a while. That you know, Dylan Thornton probably wasn't going to be around. Parker Horror was probably wasn't going to be around. One of their leaders or stars or few in county stars is pushing himself really hard so he's fit and available. And then, you know, he's like such a warrior that his entry actually went there early in the second half and he still got back. He got up and got back into the the line. He was actually marking Gary Sice when when that play goes out, but he wasn't going to be able to soldier on. And that, I know it's different between a, maybe a, a Muslim and a, and, a, and a joint, but it wouldn't have, you wouldn't be necessarily confident when you think about it from, from that perspective. From a British perspective, I hope he's available. Like I do, I think he had a absolutely exceptional year. From the day one where he marked, went into... Uh, Mayo kept Tommy Conroy scoreless 
no, he's on Ryan O'Donoghue that day, wasn't he? But you know, from that day on, did a great job on Shane Walsh and the, the um in Ross Common, even though they lost past four of the week. Conor Callan keeps him to two points. Like every single week, he was going out and really attacking uh, the best defense. So I, from their perspective, you'd, you'd hope he's available and he would be a huge loss if he's not. It was interesting. We, we had Kieran, Kieran Fitzgerald on the podcast last week and he was talking about this rivalry between Kerfin and Bridget. It's probably not so much there for the younger players, but particularly for the Gary Slices, the Mike Farriers, the Dundies, it's probably still there. And for one or two of the kind of older Bridges players, but Bridges kind of do have a lot younger of a side now. But he referenced the point, it's two all now between Kerfin and Bridget since that Kiltoom affair. And I, yeah, I, I don't know, I'd say there's no doubt young players would know that. Like they would have grown up as, as fans of the club. Like they would have, it, this stuff is, a lot of this stuff is kind of subconscious stuff. It's subliminal, but it seeps in as you're around the club and you hear talk about, you know, you can remember great days of the past and you can hear the, the, the talk of it. And I'd say it might get, it might not even be you know explicitly referenced during the week, but there'll be no doubt about the nature of it as a build-up. And you'll get journalists like me will be writing about it during the week. And as much as better than I, they, they do, that's what filters in, like they do kind of pick up on it. So I've absolutely no doubt that um, that a lot of that younger car fan, or for both clubs, like I've no doubt that they'd be fully conscious of that going into this weekend. I don't know if it has a huge amount of impact, you know. In I'm not saying in the middle of the pitch now on Sunday, it's going to be in the back of our minds, but it, it will be something that they're they're conscious of, and it'll feed into from a spectator perspective. Like, that's exactly the kind of stuff that helps you sell a game. Like that's the stuff that maybe nationally, I'm sure it'll be a segment before this game airs on that and that kind of stuff, that it'll be be the, kind of a storyline that gets people invested in it. Kevin Johnson has a few more decisions to make. His, his uh, decisions with his team selection seems to be getting harder every week from, obviously, Malloy was away. Uh, presumably, he's back this weekend, which should be expected. He obviously comes back in, but it's it's a tough decision now, considering the performance he got out of some of the players he brought in against Balna. It is, and I, I, one thing about Carfin this year, if you actually look closely at the way they picked their team, I think they're uh, they're a lot more adaptable than maybe people realise, and they're definitely picking, uh, not definitely, but this, is, in my opinion, they're picking a team based on their position fairly often. I would say Dinamo found himself in a four-forward line that day because they expect the Parker to start. That's my, in my opinion, they thought Parker yeah. was going to play, and he's just a perfect matchup. You can stick with him going the other way. And then it manifested he's not there. And it's a bit of a you on the fly, what do you do? How do you do you adjust? And they kind of left it as is. Um but I'd say that was what drove that. Will it, that. Will it, will it be the same if Brian Stack plays, do you think? I don't think so, because he's more he's not as uh Ohora with Bana was nearly more about kind of rampage and forward. He was he's not he's, like, I don't actually know if I think maybe I don't know if he's the best man marker. Maybe I think that stuff is overplayed. I'm talking from whereas I do think Brian Sack is an excellent uh, man marker, and his skill set might not necessarily be as much these kind of rampage and runs forward. So I think that's what the what drove that. Beyond that, then like a lot of the, the kind of narrow cause. I know a lot of people were looked and think, "Geez, like when is Ronan Steed going to come back in here?" And yeah. you get a performance that like you like you get out of Patrick Egan, who um like has just kind of excelled. He's gone from from strength to strength. Uh, which which was Santum, and then I th- there is that the element of it's just such a dilemma from a opposition manager's perspective that if you get uh Malloy and McHugh on the pitch together, like then McHugh is such a nightmare because he's he, you know he comes up the first half in that game, he kicks a great point, 
Then he's back in the fullback line. He's spoiling everything as they try and he's actually a player who forces the ball out for the 45 for the first chance that Ballon have in that game. And then suddenly they go on a kind of a stretch there and, and towards the latter stage of the first half where they're not really scoring. They're not getting uh, kind of, it actually looks like Ballon nearly have just after David, you know, a, a soft enough show for a penalty where a long ball goes in and Brenny comes out and just, you know, I don't know, did he clip Regan in the back of the head there? It's hard to see, but uh, you're you're starting to think, okay, this is maybe Ballon come to grips with this. And he comes again. Like McHugh just comes, the power and pass down the stand side, kicks an absolute monster with a score again. Um, so he's just able to, so impactful on both sides of the ball, which makes it very hard to, like you can't really detail somebody to follow him everywhere because you don't want to be following him into the fullback line and taking yourself out of a game. But the flip side, when he comes into a game, it makes, as a matchup, it's a, it's a complete nightmare. So be very interesting to see what, what Bridges do in, in that regard. But yeah, like, sorry, to go back to the, your question at the start, there's some huge, huge calls to make. Now the only thing about Conflin, they make changes early, like always. They just get players in reasonably early. So even if you know Steve doesn't start, or you maybe Fireman comes out out again, it'd be interested to see what they do with Lundy now. Uh, you would expect to see all of them at some point. Liam Silk on Ben O'Carroll, you'd expect, and then probably Eddie Nolan is the other key matchup for Kevin this yeah. week. Yeah, no, no. So we we played uh, Liam Silk definitely. I think is on O'Carroll. I I'd be very confident that uh, Eddie Nolan gets forward a bit. The other player though is Conan, who we we mm. so we played we played Bridget in July in a challenge game, and like challenge games are funny. You know, you, sometimes you can't really sometimes you wouldn't get a huge amount out of exact exact. You know, you you be so skeptical about how much it actually matters to the opposition, how much are they invest in it, how much do they want to show. So there's a couple of things you wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into those games at all. But there is a couple of small things you pick up on or right. And one of them is, you know, their cues. Like you'd hear how they talk to each other, you'd hear how they what are their calls, what are they what are they trying to work, what are they trying to implement, all that stuff. You'd pick up on that or right. And that that's just you know the language of a team. Every team has a has a language, every the the way that they talk to each other or the way their principles of play. And one big thing with British that I would have noticed that day was they were big on as they were attacking they kind of flood players forward which is a kind of traditional thing now so you'd have maybe a huge bulk of players you know, behind the ball in front of the ball kind of floating around they wouldn't necessarily have they're not like a dairy team where they have a lot of depth in behind and or even Carfin do this now actually where you kind of flood that, that, that they're a bit more kind of we'll play around on the fringes nearly like a Sotheel actually that way that they uh, a lot of kind of strong punch runners on the outside but the two big things I would have noticed that day was they're big on, you know, somebody calling quarterback. So when you're in that phase, you have a kind of a plus one on the outside who you'll come back out to if if things are break down, like an outlet. You're just there, kind of like a point at the top. And they're big on switches. They were massive on, so let, the ball was all on the left-hand side, right side of the pitch, comes back to the player, and immediately the switch is called, and it's a kick pass to the other side. And a lot of teams, Paul, I think a lot of reasons that breaks down, and I'm talking not just from a club sector, but also from inter-county, is because... That's that switch across is too slow. It's it's a player running the ball or it's a hand pass across the bus. Yeah. Kind of you're gradually going over one side back to the other side. Whereas if you can get a kick pass across and you've kind of committed defenders to one side, you can actually create matchups. You can create one on ones and then get scores off that. And I would have noticed Canaan did that a good bit. He would have been isolated on one wing and they would get get on the ball and kick a score. And he actually did it against Boyle in the Roscommon final as well. When I was watching highlights of that game on TG Carter, he might be. You know, the, the ball will be out on the right hand side and he's out on the left and he just come as the ball is going to crack across, he'll come in a loop and he'll kick a, a score with no play straight over the bar. So that's in uh that's definitely a principle of play of theirs. Now I'd say Carfin will know that. Like I'd say they'll have watched every game since that boil game and they'll drill down on that. But it does make it an interesting counterpoint that you've got two players who 
will be able to, to get forward. Eddie Oren, again, is, I think he's invaluable both from a club and a county perspective. I think when I, I spoke to David Burke on the pitch after the Sligo game, and I asked him, I'd just been doing the stats on their season, and I noticed they hadn't scored any 45s. And so I asked him about it, you know, you missed two, one free off the ground there, 145. I don't know if you remember, Conor Carroll had one at the end of the Dublin game when they were drawn with Dublin in Crow Park and he missed it. And uh, David Burke said to me, yeah, it's because we don't have Eddie Nolan. He's, he is the, like, he's the man they need. They, he, they hadn't scored a free or a 45 off the ground for the year, not even in the league. And it was because Eddie Nolan was injured. So he, even from that perspective, is uh, a huge plus. Um, and I, again, that's not something Carfin takes back, but it's a big plus from um, from a British perspective. All right, yeah. But in the end, Carfin just have too much? I think so. Like, yeah, I think they... Um, uh, I think this will be a good, like anything I've seen of Bridges they press kickouts uh, they might play a plus one but it, sometimes it could be very deep maybe even the, the player close to the goal just to stop if there's a line break you'd have the next player up to, to filter back so I think this could be a, a pretty good game and I'd give Van credit I think they actually did try and come out to play to a certain extent I know people are talking about the, the whole decision with the, the, the win thing but I do think they tried to I think maybe they looked at their squad and saw that they had they were down a couple of bodies and tried to come out and, and tackle uh, and you kind of hope that Bridges would approach the game in the same way. So I don't, I don't think they come out to to sit back and think. But I just think Carfin, the strength of their squad, how well they're motoring all year. Uh, you, you, I couldn't both go with them for this weekend. Just before we do finish, the uh, under nineteen finals were on over the weekend. Killanum won the A three three to fifteen points. We've seen how this benefited Carfin last year. Uh, so much from winning that 19s but it's a massive result for Killarney to win the league the West Border title and then the county title but like this can really benefit their senior team if they use this right absolutely yeah yeah. I have to say like I given the nature of the conversation we've had all year in relation to what's happening in West Galway in particular but just outside the the you know, the urban belts, you see the same thing happened to North Galway over the last couple of years and now you're starting to see evidence of it in uh, the West. Uh, and given Corfin's stress of domination, I couldn't but be delighted for Kalan. Uh, I think we, maybe if you drill down to this, you probably could have seen this coming. They've got some exceptional young players who have been coming kind of consistently over the last couple of years. It's not a flash in the pan. Like you look at their, look at their seniors by this year. Some of the, I know I, I said it to you before about Brian Mitchell. I think he has been a, a total revelation from this year. Um, you know Mitchell on the other side Young Walsh they have a lot of like, young coming players and then in terms of the positive that that could infiltrate the great thing about 19s I think is that it's not you know it, uh, in my personal opinion I noticed the age gate debate is going on across the county I think 19s is a good bridging point between your kind of your 17s and going to 17s to 20s is a jump it is a big jump that's why I kind of like 19s and I think the great thing about it is that t- players coming out of that with success are ready for senior football you could you get an impact out of that next year so from Jerry Butler's perspective you, you went into Kalan and were very competitive in your group I think they would consider themselves unlucky to end up coming down to the last day as it did but you have that nice kind of infiltration of, of players coming you wouldn't but be delighted yeah huge for them and overall with the 19s like you know, reference Kalan and there they're obviously won the A title but even Kinvara in the B title like this definitely is helping clubs that and like the powerhouses of senior football, we're seeing clubs come through with this. And even yeah, as you go down the grades, I think Milton had a lot of success at the in their seventeens uh, at, at those days. And it probably 
like like I think it is it's a testament to Galway that they've persisted with the age it's kind of independent to what's going on I know it's maybe there was a bit of frustration around the definitely under 19s last year about the organisation of that but uh, I think by and large a lot of this is just down to good organisation it's down to and then the rest of it you kind of leave it down to your clubs and how you organise it and there is it's a it's an eternal dilemma we would have had players Paul like we had we had all Ireland winning minors last year who were being initially thought they're going to be playing 19s and junior football this year and suddenly they become starting players for your seniors and it's a very hard thing to balance do you do you just commit fully to the senior and take them away from 19s and playing with lads their own age and the buzz they get off that so but like more broadly on your point yeah I think that's that kind of stuff will only but be good for for Galway football I really hope that the, that that is celebrated the same way success will be celebrated at, uh, at top there because it, it, it should be and it's probably Big thing now is trying to retain those players that from a especially from a rural club perspective, you just want to get as many as them possible playing consistent football at any level, even if that's you know your third senior adult team. It's just once you get a kind of a talented group like that, your main priority is retention, is getting as much as them possible playing football and hopefully pay pay dividends in a year or two. Yeah, I heard Patrick Sweeney talking after he was saying Clarence have ten lads from that starting team that are eligible again for next year. So that's saying something already about that squad. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and like the yeah, and what that does for a club, the lift that gives locally. I was at um, I was at a junior C Shield final <laughs> in Clannan. Was it junior C? And it was it was a very low a Shield final. It was it wasn't a, a, a it was a you know a lower level final. And the crowd from Clannan that was at that game was absolutely amazing. Like it was uh, and you know it was great, like a great atmosphere after ground and the. Uh, they had one of those electric lawn cutters that came out on the pitch midway through, and it was it was it was a great it was one of those days where it was proper like rural club GA stuff. But the buzz around the place for that was amazing. So can you imagine what it's like for lads who are actually coming through as well? I think like it must just the place must be hopping. So yeah, if you could bottle that, that's that's what every club is after. Like that's that's why underage success is so valuable because it just it lifts everybody. All rising tide lifts all boats, and it lifts everybody across the club. Yeah, there's already some of those Kalana lads. You're thinking next year that they're already going to be significant for the under twenties, even. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I like, and I'd say from a, I th- I think that it'd be very interesting that the makeup of that when it's it, always interesting when new management come in in terms of twenties. To what extent is it a continuation of what was there before, or to what extent today they casting it out? But the one thing going right back to that, the Anna Glynn's minor team, I you would have been encouraged by the makeup of those squads to see lads mm. from you know. Uh, you're always going to have the traditional heartlands of golf football well represented and as they should be but to see lads from from Spiddle and Barna and beyond included is can't be good for, for football so uh, it'd be interesting to see I mean it, it would make perfect sense to see a lot more of them as, as it goes on yeah Before we uh, do finish last night the Brian Cup final was on between University of Galway they obviously uh, came out on top against Ulster University. But 18 Galway lads on it uh, is unbelievable, really, when you consider the makeup of that squad. But even when you're looking at some of the younger players, Limo Keneally started wing forward, Killian O'Curron came on, James McLaughlin kicked three points. The players around that age and those type of players, well, I, I just got the sense watching the these are players that can really have significant years for Galway this year. 
yeah but for, like first the first thing is that what that is a savagely talented NOG team like a yeah. really really the Galway lads obviously but you know you throw Ryan Runhu and Tommy Conroy in on top of that um, and even some of the other lads could come in there like they've got some just uh, they got like some exceptional footballers in that group um, and we, like you're looking at the you know anytime you see a team list the first thing you, I think after you kind of scan your names through and then you look through the the, the replacements to see like what names you're do you recognise the first three teams you see named in the subs are Daniel Farty, O'Curran, and James McLaughlin? And you think, "Whoa, this is this is this is a stacked team." So, um, and it's again a team. A lot of those lads would have played freshers football with. Uh, one of the positive maybe from an NOIG perspective is that they have the same crew involved all the way through. So, Morris Sheridan is involved as much as he is with the freshers team as he is with the Sigerson team, um, and you know a lot of the, his coach tickets like Kieran Murphy and, and Paddy Moore would be there across across those teams as well so they know these lads intimately um, I, when when Tommy Connery was suffered that horrific injury in, in Dangan just before half time I, I, I never forget that because one of those weird senses where you knew exactly when he went down what had happened um, but the, a year later he would have done all the stats for the Sigerson team he was you know was still there was still involved which is unfortunately Paul is a dying thing in college football it's, it's uh, because of the the drive of the intercounty manager and the mm. nature of the new season, it's, it, it's not as common as maybe some people might uh, realise. And then from a Gaul perspective, like it, both from, you know, it will stand to Gaul, a lot of those ads you mentioned, we'd hopefully see the likes of James O'Glock and we hopefully see maybe kick on from a from a Gaul perspective senior next year. But also just what it does for lads who maybe aren't on the, the sub-goalkeeper there is a club mate of mine, Aaron Fahey, who also would have been sub-goalkeeper with Barner this year. He went to the, the station somewhere, but he would have, you know, a really talented goalkeeper has been very good in the league. His kickouts are brilliant, but he's got James Kane in front of him. Who, I mean, I, I think may, maybe isn't as appreciated as he should be uh, locally. I think he's an absolutely exceptional goalkeeper, and he's gotten so much better over the last two years. Um, so it's just a very difficult thing. But what it will do for him to be exposed to that and what he'll be able to bring back to the Ryan and a lot of filtering, I think, is, is a brilliant thing. So it's, it, yeah, very encouraging story. I think it's their first title since our uh, first league title since the 70s. Somebody said to me, uh, this morning, which is fairly incredible. Uh, Carl Sweeney kind of leading the line there again. There's a guy who's played a huge amount of football, but it's clearly standing to him. So it, it, it's a very positive story from a guy for a guy football from like multiple perspectives. Yeah, that's a huge win for them. They look forward now to the uh, Sigerson Cup. That's all we do have time for on today's show. Thanks a million uh, tomorrow for coming on.